Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Rick Henderson and welcome to the Pocket Imp Podcast. This week we look at the autonomous concept car from Nissan that drove 230 miles across England all without anyone at the wheel. It was a groundbreaking journey too considering it traversed and navigated on and around numerous different road conditions including roundabouts, motorways and kerbless lanes. Pocketlink founder and usual podcast host Stuart Miles joins me to talk about the AI vehicle and what it was like to take a driverless ride in it. We also chat with high-performance, real-time 3D sports tracking and data company Sportable. Its CEO, Dougal McDonald, and CTO, Peter Husemeyer, join us to discuss how its technology helps improve rugby and other sports, for players, coaches, and fans alike. But first, Ring has been in the press a lot of late, with a number of high-profile reports on privacy issues and even camera hacks. I'm now joined by Pocket Lint's editor Chris Hall to discuss the problems it has most recently faced and the measures it is taking to tackle them. So Chris, explain exactly what issues Ring has had of late. Well, there have been a couple of things that have cropped up. And the first was that uh, it looked like Ring had been hacked. A large number of people had reported strange things happening, that people had got access to their cameras And Ring's response to this was to say that actually this was because of weak security on the part of the user and that everybody needed to make sure that they were using two-factor authentication. So that was one of the first things that came up. The second issue that has surfaced more recently is that um, a large number of tracking elements were found within the Ring app that hadn't previously been disclosed. And so these were highlighted and talked about, and it sort of it it felt a bit like an echo of the situation that we'd had before where people weren't sure exactly what Ring was doing and whether Ring was really working to be secure and protect people's privacy. Uh, there was also the issue, wasn't there, of um, Ring releasing video or at least um, location data to the local police forces in, in the US um, of people who actually owned rings. So in case there was a crime in that area, the police force knew exactly where they could first ask if anybody had recorded it. So um, so does that sort of fit into the same picture? Yeah, it sort of does. When you have a device like a security camera, you want to know that it is protecting your security and everything is private. And for some people, having a police force come along and say, we want access to this video and getting it is perhaps something that you know you want to avoid. It, it doesn't happen in the UK. It's something specific to the US. But fortunately, there have been some, been some moves made to uh, improve the situation. Right. Well, that's where we that's where we come into Ring Control Center, a new section of the mobile app. Um, so, what does Ring Control Center actually do, and does it address any of these problems? Well, the Control Center is a new section in the settings of the app. So, all Ring users should now have it. We believe we've updated uh, our devices, and we found access to this stuff, and it gathers together a number of elements that were already there. For example, two-factor authentication that we mentioned earlier, which makes your whole account more secure by meaning you have to log in with username and password and then verify it with a code that's sent to your mobile device. 
that's come into the control center. So as soon as you open up control center, you'll see it and you'll think, I need to turn this on. And it's a it's a good idea to do that. You should really do that for all of your online accounts. But it's also pulled in some other elements. And one of those is that it will tell you what devices have been authorized to access your Ring account. Now, this is important because you probably think that you just use it through your phone and you may have authorized it on other phones. You may have authorized it on devices that other people are using. You may have somehow found it authorized on devices that you don't even own. And this gives you a, the option just to click immediately, deactivate everything that's connected to your Ring account. But that does then mean that you'll have to sign in again on the devices that you actually want connected one of the other elements is to uh, is to manage the services that have access to it. So if you want to use perhaps some smart home uh, service that will be able to interface with Ring, so to give you alerts, I know Alexa can do this, for example, there is an area that will let you manage that as well as if you're sharing access with other people, so someone else in your house, for example. And I, I understand that in America, it also um, gives you an option to opt out of um, them letting the police know your location. Yeah, that's right. You can turn on notifications so that if there is a police request for video footage in your area, you'll get a notification and you should then be able to grant or deny them access that should then be with your within your control. But does it actually address any of the other issues? Such uh, uh, we, We've talked about two-factor authentication, but the, perhaps a lot of people were alarmed by the trackers being present in their apps. Yeah, I think to a certain extent, Ring is a victim of its of its own success. It's become one of the standout smart home stars. Lots of people have heard about it. It fills a a, a gap on people's front door that they wanted filled. You know, easy connectivity, being able to see who's the door, notifications on your phone, and so and so it's under a lot of scrutiny as a result of that. And I think that people are looking for little bits of information that suggest that Ring could be doing better or should be more open, because that's what happens when a company gets gets much bigger. And obviously, Ring is now part of Amazon as well. But these trackers that were found in there, I went through and looked at the sort of services that they were supporting. And those services are fairly common in apps. They're used by app developers to see how their app performs. And Ring actually came back to us with a statement saying that uh, they use third-party service providers to evaluate the use of the mobile app uh, to help improve features, optimize customer experience, and evaluate the effectiveness of marketing. Ring goes on to say that they don't they don't let those market those uh, those service companies use any of this data for anything else, and that they have uh, tight restrictions on what what can be done with user data. So I don't think that there's anything particularly malicious here for many of these things it's, it's more a case of are people able to find f- functions within the app what links are they clicking through which parts of the user interface work and which ones don't there may be question marks over the data that a service like facebook is getting because it for a lot of people they won't be able to understand why facebook would need access to any data from anything that you're doing on ring and that sort of remains as an open question Although that said, a lot of people link Ring to their Facebook account and then use that for sharing Ring videos from their front door and stuff like that. In some ways, the control center does address some of the security issues. It makes things easy to find. And the things like being able to deactivate the authorized devices, I think is is really important. 
But on the other side, there is still a slight lack of clarity about some of these other tracker issues that could be cleared up and could help Ring regain some of the trust that it seems to be losing at the moment. Do you think, therefore, it should be that Ring should be a bit more open, honest, transparent, and there should be more clarity, for example, in the terms and conditions that nobody else reads? Well, that's the thing, isn't it? The terms and conditions aren't read by anybody. And often they do say these things. Um, and one of the uh, one of the trackers that I looked up, it's also used by uh, companies like Uber. And I don't think anybody's ever raised any concerns about Uber, seeing as you kind of expect Uber to be tracing your location and what you're doing with your phone all the time anyway, because that's the premise of the whole service. This whole issue around apps and privacy and data, this is going to be a concern that people have for a long time. And I think the problem that we have at the moment is there isn't a lot of trust when there are tracking services being used that you don't know anything about. And I think moving forward, there are lots of companies that are going to have to be a lot more open and say, we use these services, this is what we use them for, and make sure that people can see that information, that it's not on page 27. In the case of Ring, they have their terms and conditions, and then they have a separate privacy statement as well. So by the time you've trawled your way through all of that, you'll have probably got bored of reading. So so your advice would be to make sure that with any smart home device, you should really read the privacy statement. You really should read the privacy statement. You should also trust the bigger brands. That's what I would say. You should trust the bigger brands because there will be some people trying to sell cheaper devices and will want to harvest data and sell that on so that they can use that to boost their bottom line. But I also say... Make sure that your password security is good. Don't use the same password for everything and and always use two-factor authentication. And if that isn't available, then push the service provider that you're dealing with to try and get that as something that they add. Excellent. Thank you very much, Chris. Still to come, we look at Nissan's groundbreaking autonomous vehicle and Stuart's hair-raising passenger journey around English country lanes with no driver. I actually went in the car. I did 13 miles of the route uh, which is quite daunting because, uh, again, we were country lanes, no curbs, no road markings, and it's just trundling along. But now we turn our attention to sports tracking and the innovative tech company Sportable that has devised a new impressive way to provide analytics and data for use to improve the understanding of rugby and other contact sports. Plus, keep viewers up to speed on every movement on a pitch. We now live in an age where watching 15 players tossing a ball around needn't be a passive experience. There are statistics and maps that can be taken from the ball, players and even the referee him or herself in order to immerse a fan into the experience further. Sportable is at the heart of the tracking tech revolution of the sport and Stuart caught up with the CEO Dougal McDonald and CTO Peter Husemeyer to find out more about its current and prospective future uses. Cool. So let's probably start. That's probably the easiest way of doing this is for people that are listening to this first time around and they've never heard of Sportable before. What does Sportable do? So Sportable designs um, cutting edge uh, wearable electronics, uh, primarily for contact sports. And the idea is these wearables speak to the heart of the game of contact sports. We pull data from all the key areas of the game that matters, namely player, ball and impact. And then we use, uh, we use data analytics to synthesize the data and provide insights uh, for our users. And our users are primarily uh, coaches and teams, fans and broadcasters 
and then officials and leagues to improve the integrity of the game. And so is this a, a sensor that players wear or is it tucked into the ball or how does, how does it go from there? So we make a lot of electronics and some of the electronics we make goes on the back of a player. Some of the electronics are tiny and are embedded inside the ball. Um, and then we even embed some electronics in the very fabric of the, of the clothing that the players wear so we can measure tackles. And so is that, to give an example, you know, we've just had the Rugby World Cup. A lot of players, including the England team, for example, will wear, a, a you see like a little bit of stitching on the back of their neck, just under, at the top of their shirts and stuff. Is that the sort of trackers that then allow you to see, well, this player ran this much or this player was hit this hard or all those kind of things? Exactly. Uh, the, the standardized method of tracking athletes today is GPS technology. And the idea there is much like consumer wearables, you're able to track the fitness of your athlete. And by tracking the fitness, you can look at uh, the workloads done and ultimately protect them from overwork. Now, where we are focused in the game is we go one step further. Not only do we track the players, but we track them in very high resolution, so centimeter level accuracy, which allows us not only to analyze the fitness of the athlete, but also look at the tactical insights to understand uh, the shape and formations that players and how they're behaving together. Then the next step is integrating that data with the data around ball and impact to give you a complete uh, field of vision of what's going on on the pitch. Now, one of the things I was interviewing on, on this podcast, actually, James Haskell, uh, ex-England rugby player, and he was saying that one of the things that he felt when he was in the England squad was that they talked a lot about personalized training and the idea of being able to see how much he was running and how hard he was you know, doing all these things. But then in reality, his training program was pretty much identical to everybody else. Do you think that there's a fear, although you've got all this data, uh, that there's just too much data sometimes and, and that the coaches just don't know, understand how to, to take the data that, that you're giving? You know, this guy moved 30 centimeters in this tackle order. How, how do they take that data and make it useful? Well, I think the problem is actually they don't have enough data if you look at forwards in rugby, about 30% of all the work they do is totally unquantified. No one's quantifying how much work they're doing at lifting in the lineouts. No one's actually measuring empirically how much work they're doing clearing out of the breakdown in scrums and in tackling. And so what you find is that forwards are often shoehorned into metrics that are designed for backline players. So this is not, this is not too much information. This is a lack of information. And for someone like, you know, James Haskell, um, I think part of the problem for him was that it's difficult to tailor his uh, regime when you don't really know how much work he's actually doing. More and more teams are obviously using this. Does it does it just stay to the players? I, I know you've sort of started experimenting with balls and putting it in for Rugby X, for example. Yeah, exactly. And I think for us is, you know, our, our, our central thesis is that Fitness is a prerequisite to executing strategy. You have to be fit to play the game and play the game well. Really, the ball is the key in giving context around what's happening on the pitch. So if you think about the game of rugby, the movement of the ball is the trigger for defensive lines to move. It's also the key input. It's the key variable in how people manipulate the ball at a technical level. So the way you use it in uh, the ball out of hand, the way the ball is manipulated with the boot, these are all the key skill sets that the best players in the world have to have in order to be the best players in the world. And that's by measuring the data in the ball is only the way that we're going to be able to provide insights around why 
the best players are better than say good players on the pitch and is that is that something that's very easy now that you've started to get this data that you can actually determine how players are playing and whether they're playing effectively or not well exactly so this is what boils down to when we say there's not enough information out there what what we see is the the problem in the market at the moment is that we always say that fitness is a prerequisite to executing strategy and ultimately winning games is about executing strategy um and if you only have gps data you can't say for example how accurately your fly half is passing or how accurately your scrum half is getting the ball out to your fly half or putting him in a good position. You can't say how fast his passes are. You you can't, and if you're not measuring tackles, you can't measure how hard people are working in and around the contact areas of the game. And so it actually is very easy. When you track ball and player, you can measure things like pass speed, pass accuracy, pass deterioration. You can look at kicking, kicking accuracy, kicking deterioration. You can look at tactical analysis um, of how players put other players into space. These are the kind of things that we do on a daily basis at Sportable. And do you think that well, that's obviously an insight from a coaching and from the player's perspective? Do you think that the referees would be able to use the data to help make decisions? I, you know, there's always that a lot of the stuff in the Rugby World Cup, for example, was you know, is it actually a try or not? Because did it make the line? Is that is that something that you know the game could offer as an alternative to to TMO? So the, the was it a try or not is the holy grail. We actually laugh about that all the time in the office. But what we can do very easily is automate some of the key pain points in rugby. And if you look at fans today, fans are time poor. They've got other things vying for their attention. And in professional rugby, if fans are forced to watch a video of a potential forward pass four times in a row, it's, um, it's a turnoff. The truth is a forward pass is objectively forward or not. And Sportable can automate that decision in under a mil, in probably about 50 milliseconds. So we want to automate things that fans hate and things that the referee shouldn't have to pay their attention on. Like referees really should be putting their attention to parts of the game that are subjective and require years of experience and, and actually wisdom in deciding when to carry on and when to stop the, the, the play. So we can automate forward passes, we can automate offside decisions, we can even automate where the ball actually was kicked out rather than where it sometimes feels that the touch judge just guessed at it. And is that because I suppose the sensor the ball is talking to the players, effectively it's, it's kind of creating, you're, you're seeing every element of, of the, the pieces on the, on the game board. Exactly. So we, we know at every moment in time where every single player is, where every single reserve is, we know where the ball is exactly to within a few centimetres. We know the spin state of the ball even. So you can imagine in Hawkeye and cricket, cricket's really benefited hugely from technology in the last 10 years. Um, and amazing things like Snicko, for example. Um, when we are measuring the rotation rate of the ball, for example, if someone's trying to charge down the ball, if someone gets a finger to the rugby ball, we'll see it because we'll see the rotation state of the ball changing in real time. So it's really powerful technology. And I think from the officiating angle and from the fan engagement angle, there is, um, it's almost, the, the, the amount we can do in future is almost limitless. Okay, so it's not just about uh, rugby. I know that's one of the sports we've talked about. And obviously, we've talked about the potential of American football as well. But is this something that we translated very easily into football? Well, I think um, if you look at what's happening with VAR right now, I think 
VAR is a very interesting case study in how technology can have good intentions but kind of go wrong when it's been implemented. Um, and the issue with VAR is not the accuracy. It's the speed of the, of the decision. The problem with VAR is someone might score a goal and then fans are elated and, and, and ecstatic but then suddenly have to gut check themselves because they're worried that maybe four minutes ago there was a contravention that's now going to be result in the goal being overturned. So that's not good for the game. It's not good for the sport. And obviously anything that's defla- deflationary when, when your team scores is, is not good for the fans. And the problem actually interestingly here is, the, is just the speed of the technology. So what Sportable aims to do is, you know, we, we determine these um, infringements in real time. So within a fraction of a second, we can say if someone's offside or if someone has passed the ball forward, for example. And that's how you could improve VAR. But unfortunately, the underlying technology of VAR is uh, computer vision. And computer vision is just too slow. Computer vision takes about 15 seconds uh, for every mm. second of video to analyze. And that's, that's the problem, really. It's just, it's too slow. You need a real-time technology to solve the problem. And if uh, the listeners wanted to sort of see the technology in action, so to speak, or think, well, this game is going to be, you know, trackable or sportable, uh, is there anywhere they can do that at the moment? Uh, well, you've got uh, all our content coming out soon from some of our, our past case studies. Um, I'm not sure some of the teams uh, we're working with would be particularly happy if t- people came down to ask them for their data. But at a broadcast and officiating level, we're working with some some exciting tournaments and leagues at the moment. Uh, to put this into the roadmap for adoption uh, later in 2020 and 2021. Brilliant. Thank you very much, guys. Now we turn our attention from technology tracking human performance to tech that doesn't need human interaction at all. Nissan recently completed a 230-mile journey across England in a car, which wouldn't normally be anything special, except this drive was, well, driverless. What's more, the car had to navigate and drive across a range of different conditions, dealing with roundabouts, motorways and roads with no or minimal markings. Our own Stuart Miles even got to take a shorter ride in the vehicle itself, so he joins me now to explain why autonomous vehicles could be a big deal, and maybe sooner than you think. Hi Stu, so uh, explain everything about this Nissan car that you both experienced, but also did something quite extraordinary this week. So Nissan has just... uh created a car a part of a big consortium which has got uk backing and the like uh it's created a car that has done a 230 mile journey on uk roads from its testing center in cranfield which is just outside of milton Keynes, all the way up to sunderland where its main manufacturing plant is Uh, and the exciting thing about this journey is not that they drove 230 miles congratulations to them but that it was all done autonomously um which is quite crazy. It's, this is driving on real roads and, and stuff. Now, we've seen autonomous cars before. You know, there's, I've been in one. Most of the team have been in one. Uh, and, but normally where you find that they're kind of on a very defined uh, car park or they're on Californian roads uh, and what have you. And therefore, they've got sort of lots of guides and, and there's white lines and straight roads and all the other stuff. And the interesting thing about this was that it's driving on English country lanes and the motorway, and uh, roundabouts, and all those things that you don't normally find elsewhere in the world. Um, and it's done it all with, you know, without the need of, of, of a human driver. 
I mean, that is extraordinary. There were people in the car, weren't there? I, I, heard, I remember you saying, but they never touched the driving experience part. Yeah, so there was instances that were talking to, uh, I had a big uh, tour around the testing facility uh, this week uh, and talking to the, the, the lead planners here and some of the drivers that were actually in the car. They were in the car f- to make sure that the systems didn't fail. There was a guy almost holding the steering wheel. Um, I actually went in the car. I did 13 miles of the route, uh, which is quite daunting because, uh, again, we were country lanes, no curbs, no road markings, and it's just trundling along. Now, there are some caveats with this. It's probably worth saying. This was very much a defined path that they had uh, they had planned through. So they knew exactly the route that it was taking, but obviously they didn't know the cars that were going to be on there. Um, we were uh, in our test, in our uh, 13 miles, driving from Cranfield, basically to Newport Pagnell Services and back. Uh, we went on the M1. The M1 was pretty busy. It was the uh, middle of the afternoon. Uh, there were roadworks. There were things going on. Now, there are, let's say, there was one point where the driver that I had in my journey um, had to take control again. Uh, and that was, uh, if anybody who is listening in the UK understands this, it was because uh, a courier, a, a parcel delivery man, had just dumped his car in the middle of the road. Um, and so the car came to a halt. It stopped, but it was, they said they haven't got to the point yet where it would happily overtake other cars when it's on a, on a two-lane road. So there is oncoming traffic. On a motorway, they've solved that. That's not a problem. It will overtake things. It will pull back in, change lanes, all the other bits. Come off the, you know, come off the slipway, head to a roundabout, zip around the roundabout. All these things. It will do all of that perfectly. But it wasn't. They're not confident yet of trying to understand the the capabilities of when you go to overtake a car that's that you're crossing the lane into the other side of the road. And how do you? What are all the algorithms that go ahead with sort of understanding whether a car is coming, whether a car is coming fast, whether a car is going to let you come through, all those kind of things. So there are fractions of moments where you have to, uh, you know, there is still, we're not 100%, I just jump in the back and off we go uh, without a driver completely. But it was very impressive of, of what we saw. I mean, one of my biggest fears always about autonomous driving is um, not the or not the AI or the car itself, but other drivers. Um, is that a scary experience when you're actually in the car and you see a, a normal driver? Because surely they're not predictable enough at this precise moment. Well, that was the interesting thing. I mean, they say we were the car had the ability to slow down, to speed up. You know, the if you think of it, the way that they 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 called this thing called pathfinding, and it was this idea that they had gone through and, and mapped specifically within a couple of centimeters, almost the route that the car should take. So, when we came to a, a roundabout with three lanes, it was a fairly big roundabout, it was a motorway roundabout. So, you know, coming off off a motorway, so when we came to three lanes, it, they'd already told it which lane it should be in to get to the right junction. You know, to get to the right sort of lane to be in the right junction. Um, so they told it that, but otherwise it still had to cope with other traffic that was going on. You know, there was one point where a, a lorry was coming towards us and it felt like it was a little bit over the line slightly. And, you know, the car seemed to be able to cope with it. There was a, you know, you kind of like, kind of moment, <laughs> but, you know, it was still there. And I spoke to the driver or not even the driver, the guy that was just sitting there waiting because it does all the acceleration and braking and everything. So he was just sitting there waiting for something bad to happen. And I said to him, you know, is that is that more stressful than just regular driving? And he said, well, yeah, because you you kind of, you're not driving, but you're kind of having to think that you're driving, but understand that you could have to jump in at any moment, but not really there to jump in. 
Um, and so, you know, it was kind of by the time I got my demo, it was the end of the day. And, and you could see he was he was fairly sort of like I thought he was going to go and have a nice lie down and a coffee. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it, it, as I say, it is I think the, the reality here is, is that, you know, it's possible. It's the proof of concept has worked. I've taken almost three years to do this. Talking to another one of the drivers uh, on, on the day that we experienced, you know, I said, is the is the technology is it growing at a pace or is it kind of slowed down? Have we reached that kind of, you know, peak autonomous and now you're kind of just fiddling things out? Or is it that, you know, this is a hockey stick approach and we're just accelerating faster in the technology? And he was very much like, this is just getting faster and faster and faster. He said he was planning something the day before and then the next day it all completely changed. And this is kind of the thing that Nissan and this consortium with, uh, with help from a company called Hitachi are even now taking it to the next level. And so I had a, a second go on a, a test track. Uh, this is not ready to go on the real roads yet, so it's not part of the Grand Drive project, but rather confusingly part of their Human Drive project. Uh, I don't know why they've called them both two drives, but anyway. Um, and the idea here is that it takes AI and machine learning to help improve the stability and the reactions of the car. So it, in this instance, we drove along a very straight road. There was a car parked on the on the side of the road um, and it was able to sort of slowly glide out put the indicators on slowly glide out and then slowly glide back in because it had analyzed hundreds of times where it would learn to see what humans had done in that situation and therefore try to mimic it as best as possible rather than just going from what majority of autonomous cars do at the moment which is very much like there is something that i've seen from the radar i'm going to react in a very robotic way and pull out and pull in. Now, for them to get to that that sort of machine learning, AI, human intervention kind of element already at this early stage in what effectively has only been sort of, you know, in the AI, the sort of autonomous market sort of five years here, I think is kind of shows the pace and speed that this kind of stuff is going. Um, so I suppose the last question is, when are we going to see this as a consumer proposition in your estimation? Yeah, and I think that's the big, you know, this the full autonomy, I think, is a long way off. It's running fast. I would expect to start to see autonomous vehicles that we're safe with. And don't forget, a lot of this is down to not only the technological aspects, but also the sociological aspects of whether as humans, as people, we're kind of prepared to have driverless vehicles. I think as a full autonomy called Level 5, uh, and you can read more about the levels on on Pocket Lint about what they mean. You know, I think we're probably a good five, maybe ten years away. A lot of the elements, though, that I saw yesterday, that all the driving assist stuff will come into uh, cars in the next couple of years, and I think that will be very quick for it to come in over the next couple of years. Of you know, lane change. You know, Nissan already does Pro Pilot Two in Japan, which has got lane changing on the motorway and things like that. And I think you'll just start to see that more with companies like Tesla and BMW and Audi and all those people coming in with kind of more driving assisted stuff. So within the next 10 years, we will be at a point where, you know, in the same way that you and I, when we first started driving, you had a choke on a car to kind of, you know, get the engine a bit revved up and a bit more excited in the morning. You know, that is now, you don't even think about that anymore. I think a lot of the things that we're seeing in autonomous cars from assisted driving will be just a part of the car to help us drive better, but won't be fully 100% doing it for us. So that's it for this week's podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. And if so, please take the time to give us five stars on your podcast platform of choice. All that's left to say is that I've been Rick Henderson and I hope to catch up with you soon. 
Until then, tatty bye. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.